everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This episode is uh, one of a number that we're recording alongside on Helix, a digital conference that has been hosted by Juan Nicholas. In line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Irwin, uh, who's going to be able to provide us some insights from uh, the big pharma perspective. Richard is the General Manager and Managing Director of Roche uh, Products Limited uh, UK, the British arm of uh, the Swiss pharma major Roche, which arguably is the, the world's largest biotech company. In the UK, the company employs about 2,100 people, uh, invests almost £400 million a year in research and development, and is also a leading sponsor of uh, clinical trials here in the UK. Uh, so, Richard, uh, I hope uh, you and those you care about are keeping safe and well, and thanks so much for, for joining me. Pleasure, Mike. Uh, unfortunately, not the same circumstances the last time in a big auditorium, but looking forward to the interaction remotely. Yes, yeah, we're, we're not going to get the sort of the, uh, the immediate feedback from, from, from the audience, but, um, but yeah, but great, great seeing you again. So, um, Roche has a global footprint uh, and so parts of its organization are clearly experiencing different parts of the pandemic uh, as it's developing across the globe so starting first in china and then you know coming lost how has covid-19 impacted roche and and its activities um i think the first thing is like many big companies you try to drive a, a network, an enterprise culture of sharing learnings. And whilst there's been many tragedies that have come from this pandemic, there's also been a lot of learnings and positives. And I've got to give huge credit not only to uh, Chinese colleagues in particular, but I've also got to give a call out for Chinese experts because I think they did a, a substantial amount of great work very, very early on. Um, Look, let's not go into the politics of it, but let's look specifically at the healthcare system and the experts, the physicians. I think they characterized the disease super quickly. They um, certainly took the lead on repurposing of existing medicines. And there was huge numbers of examples of uh, whatever form of video conferencing between Chinese experts and experts around the world to share their learnings. Um, similarly, and I'm sure the same in all big companies, uh, we work very, very closely with our Chinese colleagues and I think we got to the point of daily update meetings, very specifically um, sharing their learnings, both on how people were trying to manage the disease, um, you know, what were the potential areas that you might be able to impact mortality, but also more broadly, testing strategy, of course, which is um, top news item every single day, track and trace, those sort of things. We've got huge amount of learnings. And then they carried on into Italy and Spain. And I think with them being, you know, maybe always about four weeks ahead of us, debatable, but we would say about four weeks, exactly the same thing. Those learnings cascaded for me, through the experts around the world. Now, there will be areas where every one of us take learnings that we've got to change. But I think we should also acknowledge that 
when we eventually get therapeutics that may make a difference, a big part of that has been down to uh, experts who've really done some very, very clever work thinking about what may be driving COVID and how some patients react to it. So lots of good things. And this will continue because it went then to other parts of Europe and then on to the US that uh, there was sharing as well. Although it's been a, a strange disease because even in the US there was pockets in, of course, we all know New York and New Jersey. But interestingly, on the West Coast, in places like Seattle, where they got impacted very, very early on, same sort of time frame, and shared their learnings with other US centers. So there's been lots of great things that we've got to capitalize upon. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I mean, some of those impacts, I mean, things like you know, uh, social distancing, stay at home recommendations, uh, obviously they forced us all to embrace uh, an online existence. The reason why we're doing this is, 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 is one of those reasons. Um, how has that, though, impact, impacted the, sort of, you know, the company's activity just in, the, in terms of you know, sort of like supply chains, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of doing research and development or, or, or running clinical trials? I think, um, firstly, uh, regarding our site, we don't manufacture in the UK. We're de- dealing with predominantly a biologics portfolio that's poured in Switzerland, our home, and in the US. So actually, if you look at what we do in the UK, it's R&D, and it's basically um, supporting our staff and our services in terms of getting patients uh, access to medicines. We've always been highly remote. Um, And therefore, of course, this has shifted us almost uh, more dramatically. But I think um, if you don't have manufacturing, I think in a lot of big pharma companies, you can run virtually 100% of your services remotely. So again, probably all companies are very similar, maybe the big ones in particular. You know, we practiced for pandemic scenarios for years. You know, yes, we thought it was going to be an influenza pandemic. And there is certain learnings that were attributable to any pandemic and some that were very relevant to flu. So we got some things wrong. But specifically in terms of site working, um, we strongly encouraged everyone to work from home from about two weeks before the lockdown. And, you know, it's, it's worked pretty smoothly. We have an incident team that brilliantly manage the incident so that me and lots of other people can sort of get on with our day jobs and not be distracted too much by uh, what's going on in terms of... So, look, uh, it's affected us, I think, less than many companies because we've been flexible working, we've been remote working. The big learning for me through this is that you can operate remotely and actually be creative be productive not just as individual interactions but also in teams and i've been hugely impressed that you know we've used technology to bring 50 people together from around the world but whichever system you use you know we tend to use zoom and the ability to break down a big group into smaller subgroups and bring them back together The world will never go back to how we used to manage business before, whether that be through traveling or whether it be an attitude, everything's got to be done in an office. 
I, I think um, we will never know the same again. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll come come back to to that point because obviously there's some interactions where you know in person uh, need, needs to work, um, but but just sort of uh, you know sort of you know thinking about. Uh, how quickly you were able to adjust because you've already done quite a lot of, sort of business continuity planning around such, such such an issue. Has there been things though that have had to go on the back burner as you've had to re- redeploy resources to sort of deal with some of the challenges around COVID nineteen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think everyone's had to go through a reprioritization process quickly. Uh, you know, I think one example for me is, you know, there is simply new clinical trials, expanded access programs that we're never going to start through this period. So, for instance, with us, there was a, a number of medicines in our portfolio that potentially we were looking at trialing in a, a COVID population. And we were able to swarm, you know, our medical colleagues very quickly from things that simply weren't going to happen into things directly related to COVID. But it's meant that I think almost you've been prioritizing on a daily basis. Um, Everything through this period anyway has become quite short term. Um, But I I think also increasingly as the incidents got under control in terms of you're more comfortable that you're running services, there's no uh, breaking continuity of medicines to patients, etc. It's allowed us to also quite quickly get one eye on the future, and I'm sure we're going to come on to it. But the question of what's going to look different in terms of healthcare after this, I think the answer is lots. But I think we've been able to have some focus on that and not get too caught up by the uh, incident itself. Yeah, sure. So. Um... I mean, to, to, to come to the point around, as you sort of saying, sort of the video conferencing, the fact that you know, people are, are interacting remotely. Um, I see recently, you know, Roche did that deal with Arrakis, where obviously there'd been early uh, conversations which were face-to-face, but the whole thing was finished around Zoom uh, and, uh, video conferencing. You can, I guess you can sort of, you know, finalise the deal in this way, but given the fact that, you know, biotechs, you know, they desperately need to sort of partner with with pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, how easy is it going to be to initiate those conversations when in-person interaction is going to be uh, deprioritised? I don't think anyone can can kid our audience that there is a, a personal path to interactions that make deals happen. Um, probably if you'd asked me eight weeks ago, I would have said that's impossible to do that remotely. I've slightly changed my view. And, and just through this period, I've had lots of new interactions with groups that actually, you know, have worked perfectly well. So... Please, I don't want don't want the people listening to this to believe I'm an optimist because I'm not. But actually, I, I'm not convinced that this is going to be an obstacle. And, and in some ways, it may not be mathematically right, but I find it easier to make time for doing more things remotely 
than when you've got to set up a physical meeting, whether even if that's within your own office, you've still got to walk to it, whatever. And certainly, you know, working in the southeast of the UK, a lot of time spent on trains and tubes traveling to meetings, you can do actually more remotely. I, I'm not there yet in terms of saying, look, you can do the whole thing start to finish in that way. And I think that will be part of that future that there'll still need to be some personal interaction, but a substantial percentage of it after that will be done remotely. But, uh, I, you know, I think technology is such that, you know, we've run multiple advisory boards over this period with experts. They've worked absolutely brilliantly. So the technology is there to enable and facilitate us to still work creatively, just understand you've got to still create a, a human to human connection. And that I think that will work the majority of times. It won't work every time. So, so being in charge of, you know, sort of the UK part of the business, um, what, what would you sort of say is, has, has been the biggest challenge that, um, that, that you face and, and you know, what, have, what have you done to sort of accommodate that? So I, I think, you know, the big blocks, first and foremost, staff and families prioritise them over everything. So, you know, corporately, worldwide, we just made a statement, that's what matters. And that was, that took priority virtually over everything in those first couple of weeks. So set people up for remote working, um, dampen expectations of what they can do from home when they're battling with kids and barking dogs and whatever else. And, and I think not saying that we were perfect, but I think that was an important step. Uh, for us, very much in line with that was, you know, how could we contribute? Like, again, I keep on saying many companies, you know, we have a passion for believing that we can contribute to improving outcomes in the diseases that we work in and very quickly that became COVID. So um, the work that we were doing globally um, from the UK organization um, was, you know, negotiating with FDA EMA on rapidly approving studies, things that would normally have taken a year were done in days. And I've got to give credit to MHRA, um, others, for how quickly they've also moved through this period, but getting robust um, trials undertaken has, was an extremely important point. Um, and also something that UK has done brilliantly that many people would have heard of over the last couple of weeks is things like the recovery study and remap cap to world leading protocols, very much um, led by the UK that's allowed us to recruit thousands of COVID patients into studies and actually be able to maybe be the first country to robustly answer the questions of which treatments and in which population. So that's been a, a huge piece. I think the third piece is just looking at your ongoing portfolio and patients. So we've had therapy areas that have been relatively untouched by COVID and um, therapy areas were essentially every single treatment stopped. So trying to um, work in collaboration, understand that people have best intentions, 
uh, during this period, look, lots of patient organizations did what they, they should do, which is act quickly, not think about this too much, and set out guidelines for how patients should be treated through this period. So there's been a substantial amount of work with key experts, with patient organizations, trying to manage this period of time. Look, there's huge publicity, quite rightly, about how much has been delayed during this period. Um, what has happened has happened for good reasons. So let's take away any negative um, criticism of this and just um, understand how we can contribute to uh, helping everyone manage, uh, uh, you know, clearly what everyone calls an unprecedented situation. So the ongoing therapy of patients has been uh, a third very important part. And then the fourth, as I said, was trying to keep one eye on the future what's changed, what will never go back. And um, for me, the list is long. You know, just a perfect example, I um, spend or used to spend my life on long haul flights. I would suspect that 90% of that will never occur again. And that will go to um, completely remote working. I think for big corporations, they'll seize this as an opportunity um, to realize that their carbon footprints were not acceptable. And a big part of that was traveling for business and uh, looking how differently we've got to work in the future. So it's interesting about you know, some, of the, some of the things that we've learned or some of the things we've experienced. And one of the things that I picked up there was you know, the speed at which people have been able to adapt to the new environment. The fact that sort of regulators, etc., managed to put you know, quite a lot of uh, acceleration or velocity into some of the decisions. Is this something that you think actually you know people will learn from and will adapt in in the future? Uh, okay, so I'll give you a great example of where something has changed for us from starting a discussion about a clinical trial to first patient in. No matter what we'd said or did, it always took one year. On almost any study in any part of our portfolio, um, in COVID, it took us less than one month. Uh, now, yes, uh, the regulator speed of response has been incredible, whether that be FDA, EMA, or MHRA. I think um, similarly, you know, I, I've got to give credit to NICE as well that they moved to remote interaction very, very quickly. We had the privilege of, I think, having the first remote nice committee. And um, we actually all believed it worked better than being there in person. So um, speed, definitely. And the question is going to be, once we get through um, certainly this part of the pandemic, will we go back to the one year of taking to get first patient in? Or will we now say, sorry to use the terminology, that the new normal is now one month. I think the reality is going to be um, somewhere in between. We've got to understand that we've shown that we can do things much, much more quickly. Uh, I think, you know, we're a big company that too often strives for perfection in how we plan studies and lots of other things. I think we've realized that it's dangerous to strive for perfection. Sorry to use sort of agile business speak, but a, a minimal viable product is enough. 
And uh, so I think that's a big learning. But speed, that MVP part, will make people relook at their processes and old benchmarks, I think, will be broken. And I think in clinical trials, clinical developments, those sort of areas, uh, I don't think will probably go back to the timescales and the processes of old. And I think we've got to make sure we don't, because this has shown both within companies and outside, we can move a lot more quickly. It doesn't mean we're going to get everything in one month from starting a trial design to first patient in. That is not realistic. Um, but I, I think we've got to make sure that all of us, including regulators, nice everyone else realizes you can still do things much more quickly. And, and speed is important because, you, you know, you know Mike better than anyone, the speed of how quickly we can start to, you know, developing a medicine to get it to a patient makes a massive difference to patients. It also makes a massive difference in terms of R&D spend and profitability of, of all companies. So it's important. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know it's not your area of um, sort of you know, influence, but you know, Roche, uh, you know, particularly here in the UK, but uh, it's also uh, true in the US, has been at the forefront of of the, the sort of the testing uh, that's taken place. You know, in terms of sort of the tests that you have, PCR and also the serological test. Um, and I'm just sort of, you know, wondering, um, you know, how are you able to sort of describe, you know, how that scale up is, 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 is progressing? Yeah, so maybe just to explain to the audience, uh, within Roche, we operate as three different divisions. So I work in, in with medicines and genomics, and I have two fabulous colleagues, one that leads diagnostics and one that leads diabetes care. Um, I'm sorry in advance to sound like a, a passionate supporter of Roche, but I have to say the speed of our diagnostics organization worldwide in their gearing up for COVID has um, technical term blown my mind. Uh, not so much in terms of PCR, so testing for whether you currently have the disease. Um, look, we're the world's biggest diagnostic company. If any company could gear up quickly, it was probably gonna be us. Um, what most astounded me was the speed that they geared up in terms of uh, antibody testing. Because, you know, through this period, we've had daily calls between the three of uh, our colleagues. And um, only two months ago, we had no capability to deliver a serology and antibody test. And, you know, lots of companies have learned that they can move incredibly quickly. And that's not just to you know, keeping high standards of what you want in terms of accuracy of the test and sensitivity of the test. But once you've got through that hurdle, moving incredibly quickly to gear up manufacturing supply has been uh, a truly impressive, you know, thing for me to watch of my uh, colleagues, you know, so we're super proud of, you know, working together in the Roche group because testing has made a massive difference to all governments. Like in fairness, no government was completely prepared for this. And anyone who was prepared suggests that they had spare capacity in their system, which isn't a very good way to run a system. So, you know, I, I think that gearing up of um, PCR testing and then antibody testing 
is going to be a really important way for us to get out of this disease, ideally linked, of course, with a vaccine. But um, no, so um, they've been able to work incredibly quickly and prioritize. And I think what I love regarding the antibody test is its prioritization for the NHS, for critical NHS workers, for patients who needed to continue treatments and other critical workers. And that's the right way to, to absolutely prioritize our supplies globally. Uh, and I think what we've got to do behind the scenes is make sure that is global. I'm not talking about just developed countries, I'm talking about truly global. So the numbers are vast and look, we are gearing up supply, but in very, very quick order, they've been able to get to a situation of millions of doses uh, and they'll, they'll need to expand. You know, my only other comment, uh, Mike, is that, you know, got to give credit, there's other companies involved as well. And in any country, there will be multiple suppliers. Uh, so look, at lots of companies in this space have geared up incredibly quickly. And I think, you know, we all need to be thankful because that's a, a critical part of us getting back into um, routine business and building the economy again. And, and and talking about getting back into sort of you know routine business etc those tests i mean is that something that you know Roche itself will actually be looking at its own workforce and sort of test and sort of see, you know, can you <laughs> oh, go back you, you've uh, raised a very very sensitive one and the reason is that in principle of course we'd like to offer it to uh, our workforce but in practice we need to prioritize the healthcare system uh, so, yes, we will offer it to our workers, but not in this critical phase. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is the right thing to do. You know, I suppose the only other uh, comments that I would make is outside of the healthcare system, I- I'm still to be convinced of what the benefit is of antibody testing if we've got the rates of um, the population who've ever had the disease only at somewhere between quoted 5 and 15% absolutely maximum. So the actionability of having a positive antibody test, it wouldn't change our site strategy that we're only going to let in people who um, have a positive antibody test. So I think at this stage of the disease, it's most important to channel those tests to, to healthcare workers in the healthcare system. So, um, talking about you know something that, that you are very much focused on though is that uh, sort of market access, market access and uptake of you know, innovative medicines. Uh, now, historically, the UK uh, has been a, a sort of a challenging place for all pharmaceutical companies to um, uh, to, to be successful in, in in that area. I just wondered whether you know what we're now experiencing is that making the task even even harder or is it in some way prompting a sort of a rethink by you know all those all those people who are in, in that decision making process um great question before we got to this um if you'd interviewed me i would have said i think the uk is changing from regulators to nice to nhs england's gary's a a new openness to drive faster uptake of major innovations. Um, I still believe that that sentiment is there. Everyone knows that our um, outcomes in the UK 
are often uh, at the poor end of developed countries. And look, if medicines are not the only answer. It's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than that. But we tend to have very conservative uptake of many new innovations, medicines or otherwise. Um, it, I do believe we'll see a number of areas within the UK where that is no longer the case. Um, certain targeted cancer medicines, um, certain rare diseases. There is a number of areas where we start to see an emerging picture where the UK really is getting better. And, and look, and I've been one of the critical voices at times all the way from MHRA to NICE to NHS England, but um, they still need to move and evolve. But I think there is some real positive um, belief, sentiment, vision for patients, and, and that will make a difference. The problem we have is COVID. And in all of my infusing about a hell of a lot that's been done well, you know, for instance, the gearing up of ITU capacity in the UK when we came, came from the lowest baseline has been truly remarkable. However, we have geared that up through repurposing, for instance, hematological departments and infusion clinics. And it means that at the present moment in time, a hell of a lot of the infrastructure to restart the healthcare system is not there. And it's probably not going to be there for a significant period because no government can completely undo the plans that they've achieved and put in place for COVID because as the epidemiologists tell us, this is likely to come back. You know, we are, you know, like everyone, already preparing for, you know, what we believe in. Other than the fact that, of course, probably the um, areas where we see rates increase uh, of infection. But I think the other point is we now plan on a major recurrence of the disease in Q4. Yeah. So I think a lot of companies are already making plans to not really go back to their offices until uh, certainly September. But I know a number of colleagues who are saying we're not going back in 2020. We'll review this when we get to the start of 21. So, uh, yeah, it's that restarting of the healthcare system that is going to delay a number of um, innovative interventions, whether they be therapeutics or whether they be surgery or radiotherapy or whatever it is. And that's a problem. Uh, you know, I think the good thing I would say, if I take one example of cancer services, um, you know, we've spent quite a lot of time on hangouts with um you know, various different cancer centers and, you know, people are moving to restart things, but cancer will be at the forefront. What about all the other therapy areas that have just been knocked down the road? And we're going to see six months of impact of essentially very, very few new patients being started, retreatments. And this is going to be a problem, but, you know, it, it's, it's something that is common to every single country including China that went through it. Look, I do a lot of work in China and still have regular discussions with my Chinese colleagues. They are not back to normal. Um, there is still real challenges within the whole of China, not just in Wuhan. So I think um, this is going to take time and there is going to be impacts. And uh, I think we have to be understanding of that. We need to drive people to 
you know, want to plan and get back to normal as quickly as possible, but we've got to understand the circumstances that we're playing in. Yeah. One of the things that um, you guys did a couple of years ago, I think was, was this to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the National Health Service, where you had a vision, NHS 2030, which was clearly, uh, we saw a lot more sort of, you know, remote uh, involvement um, or remote, mo remote monitoring of patients, etc. Given the fact that you know, this is actually now what people are having to do anyway, do you sort of think that that 2030 vision actually might be accelerated and actually we might get there a, a little earlier? I, I think there's um, a few dynamics that jump to mind. And funnily enough, I was just uh, walking through the kitchen and my wife was having a remote call with the practice nurse. My God, it's taken us years to realize that there's better ways to do things. So, um, you know, I think firstly, there is that aspect that the vast majority of consultations, and I'm not talking about primary care, I'm including very specialist diseases, simply do not need to occur. And um, these need to become remote. And I think talking about some of the you know, the positives of this horrible pandemic, healthcare systems working much more remotely, that you can be there for the way that your patients want to interact with you. Yeah, okay, of course, if they need tests, whatever, that's still going to need to be done. But um, I think, um, again, we will never go back to this concept of everything being face-to-face. -face. And I think this is what the NHS needed to realise that that was extremely old school and give you know Matt Hancock some credit you know this is one of the first things he called out when he came into position of that we need to get a hell of a lot more advanced in our system and that can make a, a real difference in terms of capacity within the system so that those you need to be coming into your hospital into your primary care setting do and many many others do not clog the system so I think that's um, one really important aspect. A second one is digital therapeutics. And um, I think what we've seen in the last three months is the substantial acceleration of things like remote monitoring tools for patients to help not only um, manage their disease, their symptoms, their toxicity, but also it allowing the physician to know when they need to bring in a patient and when they're absolutely fine to be left at home. Now, that's been extremely applicable in COVID, but it will be applicable no matter what in our healthcare system. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been involved with more fields with a, a remote monitoring app that they can know in real time how the eyesight is progressing of all of their patients. And that's just one example. There's some brilliant examples out there uh, across um, the whole of our healthcare system. And I think this is going to emerge as a massive, bigger thing. Look, it's been there for a while, but I think this is going to make it exponential. I've got to say from a, a Roche point of view, you know, I think I'm trying to push that every one of our priority medicines or therapeutic areas, we are also prioritizing remote monitoring tools or remote apps that can not only help the patient manage their disease, 
that give the healthcare professional real insight so they can see in their iPhone exactly how, for instance, the toxicity of a chemotherapy agent is working, whether they need to alter the dose on the next cycle and things like that. So I think that is um, a, a real positive that will come from this. The third, and it's both uh, positive and negative depending on therapy area, I think worldwide people are saying that hospitals will never stay reliant on um, medicines that they can only administer in complicated hospital infusion clinics. And um, this will make every healthcare company look at their portfolio and say, is this sustainable? So, um, and, and look, there'll be examples where um, there's new therapeutic interventions that can be given out of hospital and they will be prioritized in our system and in many other countries. But many of us have medicines that are only, biologics that are only given in a, a complex hospital setting and that is a major challenge for the future. So everyone will be chasing to look at alternate uh, methods of administration and how they can develop those formulations. So, um... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, th I think that's a really good point that you're making there. So, so, so beyond the sort of the, those lessons that we've learned, um, is there anything else that you, you you think that the experience that we've had that you know, politicians, the regulators, the research community, or or industry needs to take on board? and and sort of your push forward in in a post-pandemic world um well one area is um observational studies and one thing that's been proven through this period is observational studies count for very little um, we have had constantly contradictory signals from poorly sized um, and maybe not always greatly conducted studies. And until you get the proper placebo-controlled randomized study, you know, all you're hearing is noise. You know, come on, the world has seen hydroxychloroquine, and, and no disrespect, I don't actually know who makes it in the UK. But anyway, um, I think this has shown uh, the robustness of well-controlled studies. Um, so I think that points, so it's not a complete change for anyone who suddenly thinks that the world has changed and you could get away with less robust studies in a future world. I think they're, uh, incorrect. I think if anything, we'll see it move the other way. Um, so that, you know, that is, uh, probably a, a major one. You know, other than that, we've already touched on speed. Um, and I think that, you know, those are the major aspects. I, you know, maybe the only other thing is collaboration. And I think no matter what anyone thinks about um, their own company that they work for, they've probably seen through this period you can't do it alone. And uh, maybe it will push us into a more collaborative world, um, both with the healthcare system, but I think many companies are on that journey of being true partners in terms of how they improve outcomes in their priority areas. But also, if I take cancer as an example, um, you know, we're madly passionate about 
proving that we can improve outcomes for cancer patients, in particular tumour types? Um, the simple answer is we can't do it alone. You know, screening is a massive part of cancer outcomes. You know, we don't do any of the screening technology. So here's a perfect example of where we've got to collaborate. And I think there is areas, and cancer is a perfect one, that three or four different partners from different sectors can collaborate together with the NHS, either as a collective or in individual centres. And I think we're, not because of COVID, but I think we're at a stage where collaborative partnerships with the healthcare system will prove um, that they can drive better outcomes in, in record time. And once you can do that uh, in small number of areas in pilots, you can scale that very, very quickly. So I would love to be passionate about a new future for, I, I refuse to call it um, big pharma, but I call it healthcare companies, because they truly prove they are healthcare companies and a part of improving outcomes. Otherwise, and you know better than anyone, um, we're commoditized drug sellers and we have no future. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the um, the sort of the observation about sort of you know, more collaboration. We've seen that with with sort of in fact with COVID nineteen, we've seen where you know all, lots and lots of companies have got lots of different things to offer. Have got together either in, in industry consortia or also in these public private uh, partnerships. So that's clearly worked. I think the point that you're making though, it's it's about speed, but it's not about cutting corners. Um, so there is still a need for robust uh, clinical trials, etc. So, yeah, uh, our regulators won't let us cut corners, and they're right to. You know, I think we're very fortunate globally, but I think with FDA, EMA, and and MHRA now, I think we've got real world, you know, leading regulators, but also some partnership of doing the right thing for patients. So, Richard. Thanks very much for uh, taking time to talk to me today. Pleasure, Mike. Uh, Thanks so much. Yeah. So, so uh, I mean, the insights you've shared um, yeah, are going to be of great interest to the audience, and I'm sure they're going to resonate with you know quite a lot of um, uh, executives um, uh, in, in, in the industry. Um, so, if you'd like to tune into future conversations, follow our LinkedIn page, uh, where we'll be posting. Uh, alerts to uh, future episode releases. Uh, in closing, I'd like to thank Richard again for, for joining us and, and thanking all our listeners for, for tuning in. Uh, until next time, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward, and I'll see you in the next episode.